Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome, dear listeners, to Hidden History Happy Hour with Alex and Brian, where we have a drink, have a laugh, and just might learn something, as my grandmother used to say, and where we enjoy a beverage or two after the fashion of the subjects of our stories. My pal and co-conspirator in this ongoing experiment with history that's both fun and relevant is author of Lessons from History, Hidden Heroes and Villains from the Past and What We Can Learn from Them, the inspiration for this podcast, and future British Member of Parliament, that small debating body based on our Congress, let me introduce to you Alex Dean. Good grief, what an introduction. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. Well, Brian's been a great friend for uh, many years. Uh, he's uh, right about a lot of things. He's wrong about a lot of things. And the beauty of this podcast is going to be, I think, that you find out and show that that doesn't really matter. Excellent. So today, our very first episode, Alex and I will be quaffing rum, the spirit despised in the British Empire until one of history's greatest PR campaigns made it a craze at home and a staple at war, whether on land or sea. Just a little color about our show, everybody. First of all, we're going to try to not just give you some obscure nuggets from history that might inform and also entertain. We're also going to try to bring in context and lessons, current events uh, whenever we can, and try to make it fun, but also relevant for a good cocktail discussion, which Alex and I have been having together for almost a decade now. Alex and I met because Alex was and still is a privacy expert, as they would say in his home country. And I recruited him to be on a privacy council for one of my clients as a cybersecurity lawyer. I'm also a former intelligence officer and policymaker in the US government. So I'll bring that perspective to it. And Alex is much more the student of history than I am as demonstrated by his book, Lessons from History, on which this podcast is based. And Alex, why don't you tell us how that came to be? Thank you very much. Um, well, it was a book I wrote during uh, lockdown, uh, during the coronavirus period that we have all uh, recently endured. Um, my father uh, was very sick and, and died uh, during the lockdown period, not from uh, coronavirus, he had, he had cancer. Uh, but it meant that I uh, was spending a lot of time at my parental home and for the last months of his life I, I lived there and it was hard times but it was also um it was also good times actually and it was something that was really made possible I suppose by the fact that we were in this lockdown time anyway desperately sort of seeking distractions and um uh, I had a bit of downtime in, in those times when he was sleeping and I um I found myself surrounded by my father's works of history I've always been um, fascinated by history. I am not an historian. I'm an, that, that most English of things, an enthusiastic amateur. And I started telling stories on Twitter uh, as a lark. I started telling anecdotes as a, um, as a form of relief in something I was enjoying and hoping that somebody, I had no idea, I thought it might fall on its, uh, fall on its face. I had no idea that anyone would be interested. Within three or four stories, they were accumulating hundreds of retweets, thousands of comments and likes and uh, and direct messages and people recommending different stories. And within a dozen um, stories, I had a book deal. So, I mean, it's a, it was not anything I was expecting out of lockdown, but it's not a bad result. And yet, 
I toiled for two years in the Iowa Fiction Writers Workshop, and I've never had a book deal, but so be it. That's a great achievement. And Alex and I are close friends off the air, so it would seem less than genuine if now, uh, many months later, I express my sympathies for what we went through with your father, because I've done that many times. But on behalf of our listeners who are just learning this for the first time, I'm sure your dad appreciated you being with him for his last months, and um, it's given the world this gift. So let's, uh, let's share it. Why don't you launch our first story, Alex? Sure. First, uh, first one up out, out of the gate. Uh, we're going to tell the story of Fort Budge Budge. Uh, this is uh, an anecdote that comes to us from Clive of India's campaign. Uh, the British had lost Calcutta, uh, as we uh, called it, and uh, then, and uh, there was a campaign to retake uh, Calcutta. And on the way uh, there, there was a fort uh, called Badge Badge, uh, which we wittily called Budge Budge because it was very proving very difficult to uh, shift. Um, it was held uh, by, despite bombardment by ships and attacks on land, the British were unable to uh, make headway. So a, a strong force under Clive had, uh, had sailed to a safe distance, camped on land for the night, planning a massive assault uh, the next day. Supported by heavy guns from the ship, hundreds of men were going to storm the fort. But it as reckons, would be needed, you'd think. As you would think, uh, but it reckons without the power of rum in the British Navy <laughs> and one able seaman, Strachan. Unusually, Brian, unusually for a sailor, Strachan was apparently fond of a drink. Ah. And the night before the battle, he was doing what I think the kids call preloading. And he did some serious uh, investment of time and efforts in consuming some rum. And when he was sufficiently fired up, he sort of staggered and weaved his way up to the fort on his own. And he climbed the walls and he started setting to about him. Uh, as these uh, defenders belatedly clocked the presence of this uh, lunatic uh, on their walls. Uh, and he preemptively gave himself three cheers and cried out, the place is mine. <laughs> but ac actually, the tide was turning against him, not least because he had snapped off the end of his sword. Uh, whether he'd managed that on an opponent or on a wall remains un unnamed. Shrouded history. in the mysteries. Indeed. Luckily for him, a couple of his mates who'd been up late with him, were drawn by the noise and uh, ran to the fort and swiftly uh, took uh, up arms with him and shouted the odds uh, alongside him. And seeing that their fortress uh, had apparently been breached, the entire garrison promptly fled. <laughs> uh, it turned on their heels and, and ran, leading, uh, meaning that the battle that had been planned the next day was, of course, entirely unrequired. Um, the fort had fallen without a single British casualty uh I, I say that uh, but a, a captain uh, as they were mustering um a captain called campbell had been shot by one of his own side um nice. they apparently thought he was one of the enemy how popular he was with his troops i don't know <laughs> uh but you know so no british no british casualties inflicted by the enemy in in, <laughs> in the course of that the reason it's so interesting other than the fact that uh, it probably teaches you some uh, lessons you shouldn't heed about alcohol, is that Strachan was summoned by the Admiral in charge of that expedition, uh, Watson. Uh, yeah, what's all this then, able seaman? <laughs> you know, I, I, he said, well, I, I took the fort. Yes, but against orders, on a frolic of your own, uh. Uh, on, on a frolic of your own, dismissed. And plainly, 
he left uh, Strachan under the impression that he was going to be severely disciplined because uh, and he's lost to history after his remarks to mm-hmm. his mates in camp. But his last words known to history given to his friends were, you know, if I'm flogged for this, I'll never take another fort as long as I live. <laughs> That's a great story. Now, this will not be the first or last time I will ambush you in life or on this podcast, but I do have a strategic no question or two i'd like to ask you to help set the context for for our listeners first of all why did the british want calcutta well we clive is, is one of the most controversial figures in british colonial history and of course that is going some um yes it was not his first uh, time in india he had been in and out of the uh, ranks of uh, the east india company he had become enormously personally enriched in that time and um the British, in divide and conquer and making alliances, uh, would put up one or another uh, local leader to um, run a, a, an area, normally fostering a bit of hostility with someone else so as to maintain instability and it was a manipulative regime. But from time to time, there was uh, a terrible, uh, for the for the British colonial perspective, a terrible bit of resistance, which meant that uh, you'd lost control and you couldn't win the person back and you couldn't woo them right. back. And such was the case in Calcutta at that time. The, the one, one we lost, when the British lost Calcutta, um, a number of men were imprisoned in a tiny uh, tiny cell, which became known as the Black Hole of Calcutta, became exceptionally famous yes. in, in Britain. It's actually unclear as to whether or not the uh, the leading Indians at the time knew even of the existence of this. But that that was used by it's the, Han- the British Han- Hanoi Hilton of the campaign. Yeah, exactly. It was used by the, the by British as kind of form of propaganda to whip up popular opinion to to militate in favor of retaking Calcutta. Right. Well. Let me just process these facts for a second. So you have a world imperial power who installed its own government and then lost control of that government and then had to mount a massive invasion to recover it. As we Not re- that uncommon. Well, well, there was a small disagreement between your country and mine, which uh, the details are lost in history. But, uh, we might get to that. But what I, but what I was going to say was... As we're recording this podcast, there are something like 170,000 Russian troops sitting on the borders of Ukraine, uh, largely because of the same problem. So I hope that uh, Ukraine has its own able seamen to uh, to resist the Russian invasion. But Alex Dean, what does this tell us about a theme we're going to recur to many times throughout the podcast when disobeying orders is actually doing the right thing? Right. Um, I think there are lots of, in my book, there are lots of more clear-cut examples of when disobeying is the right thing to do. I mean, the the most likely outcome in the story I've just told you is obviously that Strachan gets himself killed, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, that would be, I mean, it would would be a loss to the Navy, would not be a huge one, uh, (laughs) but it would have been... it would have been fruitless. And he, the other thing that might have happened is that if enough people had been militated by his activity into a, um, an, an assault before things were ready and well organized, uh, he could have lost the battle. You know, if, enough, if his mates had been followed by a few more, who'd been followed by a few more, um, you can wind up uh, losing a conflict when you, which you had planned because of unplanned actu- activity. So um, I think Watson, his admiral who uh, upbraided him, rather had a point. Yeah, well, there's lots of great scenes in movies and novels where Top Gun being the one that comes to mind, where the admiral has to ritualistically chew out 
the subordinate upstart who disobeyed orders. And then as soon as he's gone, the boss opens a bottle of whiskey and pours one for his lieutenant and says, yeah, but if you're going to the foxhole, wouldn't you want that guy with you? Right. Uh, Perhaps not true this- of this able steaman, but... Well, we, we, I can't help but notice that we tell these stories about the people who survived and the people who, whose, yeah. whose jaunt went well, right? An, another, another way to frame it is to very briefly touch on something that I bet our listeners thought when they knew we were drinking rum, which was we were going to cover pirate stories today, which we're not, but we eventually will. But I'm reminded of the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, moment where Will Turner decides that sometimes being a pirate is the right thing. Right. I have a, a, a to tease for the future. I've got a, a pirate story about Julius Caesar, which um, we'll do <laughs> maybe in the next episode. Yes. Yes. You got to stay tuned, everybody. Part of the game here. And by the way, you're not spectators. You're participants. You're, you need to be drinking what we're suggesting in a safe environment, of course. And we're eventually going to ask you to contribute obscure stories from your own history or your area, and we will turn them in to stories, perhaps for the next volume of Lessons of History. That sounds great. And indeed, I should, should have said, I should have uh, uh, said up front, but social media drove the, uh, the book. A lot of the stories were suggested by my readers online, and I regard it as a work of history. It's a very modern thing. It's kind of collaboration across the internet uh, with, between me and literally hundreds of people. So uh, let's hope this is the next stage. Yes. What percentage of stories in the book? I think there are 95 plus stories in the book. What percentage yep. are contributed by original ideas from uh, from tweet uh, reviewers, well, half and half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great half of them. Yeah. Def- definitely. And so uh, there are a few uh, annoyed people whose story I couldn't uh, get in. Sometimes <laughs> because you know I have to do some research and make sure it stood up. Yes. And sometimes there were people were convinced that something was true, uh, but a bit of research showed that it either wasn't or there wasn't enough there to to say that it definitely was. Yeah, and dear listener, if you don't believe Alex, you're going to want to tune into our St. Patrick's Day story because you're going yes. to find some shocks uh, in that event. Unless you're a, unless you yourself are a historian of St. Patrick, in which case maybe we'll have you on as a guest someday. Anything else, Alex? We can learn from the able seaman. No, I think we've covered uh, Strachan well. It's I, I reflect the um, sometimes the the character you just rightly described the the leader who chews him out and then reflects afterwards. Watson plays a bit part in that, but he was a remarkable man in his own right. And I just you shouldn't we shouldn't finish without tipping the hat to that. Detached from his fleet when he was patrolling off uh, Cadiz, when treasure galleons from the Spanish main were there for the taking um, for brave sailors, perhaps the most remunerative opportunity that you could have um, in in that environment in your life is to seize a galleon and and take your share in it. Watson sailed to Toulon when he heard the news that a battle might take place and thinking that his ship might be needed by the fleet. And in the um, privateer days and in the profit-driven days of one's naval career, I think there were very few people who would have done that. And I, I think, so he was a brave man in his own right. And I think the extent to which, as you imply, that stern face that he would have had in his disciplinary meeting with Strachan um, had some laughing behind his hands is probably hard to overstate. Yes. Yeah. Well, so I think the takeaway here is uh, to quote the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Sometimes you got to say what the fuck footnote, not necessarily in this case, but at least it worked out. 
And I think a more straightforward example of that principle, Alex, is our next story. Uh, be, it takes place during the War of 1812. A couple of fun facts about the War of 1812. First of all, I believe it has been compared to the United States sitcom Seinfeld, which was known as a show about nothing. And the War of 1812 arguably is a war about nothing. And by being compared, I mean, I compared it just now. I've never right. actually read that anywhere. <laughs> You've never heard that before. <laughs> in, in I've never heard that before either. <laughs> but if, if Americans know anything, and I should say, Alex and I are probably not on the vanguard, in the vanguard of political correctness, particularly when it comes to speech. However, I would like to have, as we would say in the legal profession, uh, an ongoing note in the record that when I say Americans, I'm referring to citizens of the United States, even though this might piss off my Canadian brothers my, and sisters or my Mexican brothers and sisters. And I know Alex and I are going to have a conversation about that. But for purposes of this story, when I say Americans, I'm talking about citizens of the fledgling United States in 1812. Alex, unless you want to correct me. I would. I want to point out that British North America had a number of people who would not have considered themselves American in the sense you're implying. They would consider themselves loyal to the crown, as indeed loyal America, Canada, remains to this day. Yes, they're called traitors, but we can talk about that another time. So anyway, if Americans know much of anything about this mostly forgotten war, at least here in the U.S., and I'll be curious, Alex, to hear where this fits into British history as it's told to uh, grade schoolers, but Maybe you know when it started, 1812, which is not exactly correct anyway. You may know that the Brits burned our capital during that war, and they tried to burn the White House. And a little personal footnote here, Alex Dean, uh, when I was working in the White House, and you know, I just like to slip that in every time I can, like someone who goes to Harvard can mention Harvard in the first two seconds of any conversation. But I did actually work in the White House. And occasionally, we would give White House tours. And much like Rob Lowe in the West Wing, I was completely terrible at it. And uh, the only fact I ever could remember was, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a portion of the mansion, not the West Wing, but the original mansion that is actually still shows the burn marks. They've never fixed those right. to remind people of what happened. Any event, you may know uh, those two things about it. A few nuggets about the War of 1812 that might surprise a lot of our American listeners is, first of all, we started it. That was actually news to me when I, when I researched this. And maybe we'll have a chance to discuss that later. Secondly, as far as I can tell, this was the origination of the phrase war hawks. So you'll hear people, usually members of Congress of the opposing party of a president referred to as war hawks, meaning people who are always pounding the drums for war. Hawks and doves, right? Yeah. Current, current example might be Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Uh, but it, the, but at least as far as I can tell, this term Warhawks originated in this time of 1812, when there were a lot of members of Congress who were agitating us to have another go uh, at Great Britain. And it's also the case, not making this up, uh, that some historians refer to the War of 1812 as the second war of American independence or the end of the Revolutionary War. You guys might have called it something else, Alex. Glorious War of Burning Down Washington, I think is its full name. <laughs> Footnote, you lost. Okay, so this story uh, is related to the prior story, not only because our heroes uh, probably drank rum, as near as I can determine, out on the western frontier of the United States of America at that time, but also because it, I think, is a more clear-cut example 
of how uh, sometimes you have to debate, uh, disobey orders. It, it has youth versus experience. It has boldness versus caution. And it has another thing that I suspect will become a theme of this podcast, and that is the role of alcohol in warfare throughout history. I don't know if your dad's library has this. I've never seen a comprehensive uh, historical from Roman times till now reckoning of that, but that's a pretty good idea for some historian out there. Somebody listening to this podcast may write it. But I did find a University of Chicago article, which we'll put in the show notes. We'll also put in the show notes, of course, Alex's book and links to photos and, and discussions of the stories that we're talking about. But in this particular article, they focused in a very scholarly and boring way, which I'm not going to recount, on why on the Western frontier of the United States at the time, which is what we're about to talk about, um, alcohol was such a key factor. And it's a fact, historically, I believe, that doctors in at least the American military, and I think the British military too at the time, at least a lot of them really believed that alcohol was not only medicinal, but actually necessary. And uh, we'll circle back to that in a second. But right now, let's talk about one of the most decisive land battles of the War of 1812. By the way, uh, this was a related battle to the most decisive naval battle of the War of 1812, which is another thing which most current Americans probably don't understand. How was there a naval battle in the War of 1812? Maybe it was off the Atlantic coast. Maybe it was British ships coming up the river right. to Washington, D.C. Could have been all those things. But what I'm talking about is the famous, famous Battle of Lake Erie. Now, Alex, if I asked you to name the five great lakes in the United States, could you do that? Superior, Erie. I'm done. Yeah. Interesting that you uh, said superior <laughs> first, by the way. Um, yes. Well, there are, there are a number of them and they're very large. They're large enough that if you are standing on the shores of especially Lake Erie and Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, you might Michigan. Think, yes, you might. And there's also Ontario and Huron, but you might think you were overlooking an ocean because they're large. They have actually very, very rough weather. I don't know if we'll ever do a story about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but there's a nine minute song about it. You can find by Gordon Lightfoot that was on uh, Lake Superior. But in fact, the battle of Lake Erie in the war of 1812 was decisive because it's hard to imagine this now. And I grew up in Ohio and it's very hard for me to imagine it, you know, with Cleveland and Cincinnati and the industrial stuff and all that. But at the time, what we now call Ohio, which they would have called, Northwest Territories or some such in 1812 was the frontier. This was as far as the upstart colonists had gotten right. west. And there was nothing, as far as we knew, west of us except forest and indigenous peoples and lots of different ways to die in the wilderness. So correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but my understanding is after the American Revolution, which I know you have a different name for, uh, part of the British strategy was to arm our indigenous people, our Native Americans. I say, quote unquote, our, obviously that was not part of the United States west of the sure. territories, but to arm them and sort of goad them into aggressive actions against the United States to keep us busy fighting people like Tecumseh Whoa. to weaken our virtually non-existent defense capabilities and above all else to keep us contained in the east. You say potato, <laughs> um, one might say, um, 
that we had allies amongst uh, what were then called Indians, we now call Native Americans, uh, that we had allies, that we were fighting you alongside. And, and indeed, um, I, as they say in Sopranos, tell you a couple of three things. Um, the other thing I'd point out about that is that whilst you're right about how it started with your agitation, the reason that you were agitated was the traditional uh, cause of British war with France and British rivalry with France. We, we were blockading American trade with France in, in 1812. And that's why it was an indirect uh, issue uh, that kicked things off. And in the end, it was, yes, it was us and Native Americans against you. This was the other reason that I, I kind of demur on the term Americans being the, the word used, because you were kind of ex-Brits and you were fighting the real Americans. I would just like to drop a footnote that we may or may not use. I believe I have never used the term Americans to refer to individuals in North America at that time. I call that people of the United States. When I say Americans, I'm referring to our audience in North America today, which is still inaccurate, I know, but I have my ongoing footnote. So all right. This all brings us to the Lake Erie frontier in 1813. Now, if you know there was a battle of Lake Erie in 1813, which you may not, then you probably also know of the heroic Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, who at age 27, defeated the British Naval Squadron on Lake Erie. Again, maybe a lot of people don't know there ever was a British Naval Squadron on Lake Erie. And this was ararguably the decisive naval battle of the War of 1812. And, and, and Perry uh, was most famous for, as I'm sure you know, Alex, defiantly flagging the flag, flying the flag, defiantly flying the flag with the last words of his deceased comrade, quote, don't give up the ship, close don't quote. Don't give up the ship. Yeah. Unclear whether the original flag had an exclamation point, but it has it in my notes. And these were the last words of his former deceased comrade. But sadly, Alex, we don't have time for the tale of Commodore Perry today, although it is in and of itself surprising and chock full of lessons. Uh, but we'll defer this to another day, because what I want to talk about is the most decisive land battle of the Battle of Lake Erie, which is bizarre to think of. But nonetheless, it happened. So much of the importance of Perry's victory at, at sea, air quotes, right. on Lake Erie, was the strategic necessity at the time of enabling the army of future U.S. President William Henry Harrison, uh, who is one of many presidents from my home state of Ohio, to not only be prepared to fight the British and the Indians, but also resupply himself so he could do that. And a key to protecting Harrison's forces in northern Ohio, what's now Ohio, uh, as well as eventually resupplying them, was a tiny rundown, barely a fort, down the road, down the road a piece from his headquarters in what is now known as Fremont, Ohio, which is my birthplace. So on that decisive day of August 1st, 1813, 22-year-old Major George Krogan, process that for a second, 22-year-old Major George Krogan, what do you think a modern 22-year-old would be thinking if they were left in command of a rundown fort with almost no weapons. Can you imagine such a thing? Impossible to envisage. Well, no, actually it's not. There are, it's the wrong comparison though, because I'm sure there were plenty of wastrels and idiots uh, in 1813. He was well-trained in a military force. And I think we've got plenty of brave young soldiers around. It's just the others that you're talking about who might uh, blanch at the notion in the woke age of having to pick up arms to defend freedom. Very fair. And I, I believe you're right. And both of our countries who are, of course, now the closest of military allies uh, have many people, especially since 9-11, who have given up what was going to be a very different life 
uh, to sacrifice themselves to protect uh, us. So hats off to them. Right. Cheers to them. Let's have a cheers. So cheers to them. Because also we forgot to do this at the beginning. Cheers. We did. Cheers. And of course, these things are easy for us to say. We've never done it. Um, That's correct. Back to, back to your major. Yes. So Major George Krogan, 22 years old, uh, had served under General Harrison in the, <laughs> it's funny to think of it now, the Kentucky Volunteers, uh, which uh, was a militia. And as we may talk about in a few future episode, and we'll be sure to get mail about uh, the Second Amendment was intended to protect in part the right uh, of militias to bear arms. Uh, he was a member of a militia, the Kentucky Volunteers, at the Battle of Tippecanoe. Alex, what do you know about the Battle of Tippecanoe? And Tyler, too. That's it all anyone of- knows about it, <laughs> because <laughs> William Henry Harrison was involved in that election. Perhaps we'll talk about that uh, on another day. But in any event, by uh, 1813, Krogan, uh, now 22, was a captain in the 17th U.S. Infantry. And I doubt there were actually 17 U.S. Infantry. I haven't researched that, but then that numbering seems a little screwy to me. But in any event, historians describe Krogan, and here I'm going to drop another footnote. When I say historians, I mean the librarian in Fremont, Ohio, who wrote the longest and most detailed history of the Battle of Fort Stevenson, which we're about to get to. But historians describe Krogan as, quote, debonair with brooding good looks. Much, much like myself, I much think like you'll us. agree, Alex Dean. Yeah, both oh, of us. Oh, you had to go that way. I, I, that says, tells, tells people everything they need to know about the difference between us right there in a sentence. All right. All for one and me for myself. All right. In any event, getting back to your point about his uh, love of service, it turns out he was also the nephew of William Clark of Lewis and Clark. And a lot of what motivated him, and I'm sure we'll get this, get into this in future episodes, a lot of what motivated warriors throughout the ages was uh, social acceptability, honor, public uh, accolades. And he was very concerned, Krogan was, that his service in the American, the United States military at the time would always be compared to Lewis and Clark and other family members who had fought in the revolution. And so he was very conscious of his honor and what his superiors would would say about him. But in any event, it's uh, late July of 1813. Major Krogan at 22 and his tiny band of defenders uh, were likely quaffing rum at the time, based on both the University of Chicago article that we'll put in the show notes. And also because according to one account at the time, the building of the forts in this era and in this region decimated the local forests to the extent that there was no wood to burn for fires to keep the soldiers warm. And they quaffed lots of booze to make up for it. Let's pause for a second. What do you know about when the British Navy ended their ration of rum for sailors? Oh, it was exceptionally recent. Yeah. Uh, it was certainly the 20th century, well after the Second World War. Yeah, the Falklands, they still had it, I think. Uh, I don't know if that's... It, uh, it may have been on special occasions, but I don't think there was a, a, ration. a ration. I'm not sure there was a ration in, in the same way. Uh, we had a... Um, we were the, we trialed in our Royal Navy. The, the extent to which these were volunteers is questionable. <laughs> we had to have the initial vaccine uh, trials tr- with true, you know, dummy and blind testing and so forth. And um, uh, one group got rum 
Uh, whilst they didn't get the vac, didn't get the vaccine. I think they had a pretty good outcome. <laughs> well, this was not injected rum. No, they just drank a lot. Yeah. Okay. But for, to, to help that, to help science. All right. Cause we don't want to mislead any of our listeners into thinking that you could inject rum or something like, I don't know, bleach into your veins and get any medical benefit. Yeah, it was a beautiful story. Yeah. Yes. Best story. We'll get back beautiful. to that, but we digress. August 1st, 1813 British gunboat opens fire on poor little Fort Stevenson from both gunboats and guns on shore. Why do I call it poor little Fort Stevenson? Not only do I have an affectionate connection to it, which I'll mention in a minute, but this was bare bones. They had one cannon, actually probably technically half a cannon because they didn't have all the parts to it. And this was decades old. I think it was from the French and Indian wars, but we'll check that and correct it if I'm wrong. And that's it. He had 160 soldiers that answered to him, Krogan did, in Fort Stevenson. Estimates put the combined British and Native American forces under Tecumseh that were swarming around the fort at approximately 2,700, with 2,000 of these forces under legendary warrior Tecumseh. And to answer this existential threat, Major Krogan had a total of approximately 160 men and one, let me repeat that, one broken down, decades old cannon, affectionately known as Old Betsy. Old Betsy, you'll find a photo of in the show notes. A little aside, Alex, visiting the Imperial War Museum a few years ago in London, I couldn't yeah. help but notice that in many, if not most of the British defeats in war, they were described in the museum as facing vastly superior forces, quote unquote. This was not one of those occasions. Sometimes that's more true than others. But in this case, Krogan was truly outmanned by more than 15 times, and he was massively outgunned. So how did our hero win this decisive victory that arguably changed the course of North American history? Well, he did it by doing two things that I think will be central to many of our stories. First of all, he flatly disobeyed General and future President William Henry Harrison's orders to abandon his post if the enemy was significantly stronger than he. And most importantly, was bullshit. Now, in this case, it was a bullshit of deeds and not words. British assaulted the fort. Krogan and his band of brothers took old Betsy, pushed her into a corner firing position at the fort, fired on the British and Native American troops, and then shoved it or by brute force <laughs> to the next corner, pushed it out that hole, shot again, and so on and so on and so on, rinse and repeat, until the British had lost 150 or so of their forces and withdrew. Now, 150 against 2,700, 5%. Uh, apparently, that's a significant loss because the term decimated as I understand it. Yeah, one of, so that, so it was, it was half of being decimated. And although the war of 1812 raged on for a bit longer, this small battle actually proved to be one of the key turning points, uh, arguably of continental, of the Northern, Northern hemisphere's history, because it ultimately led to the pushing back of the American frontier all the way to the Pacific. But those tales are for another day. Well, I think that leaves something out, doesn't it, Alex? A little thing called impressment. If I press ganging? I might be. What do you think that means? 
where we forced people into armed service. Uh, it's got, I, if, if we're talking about the same, I did the Americans. You have may, may have a different term, but we call it being press ganged into service. And our, our especially the Navy would you know, yes. come off a ship, march down a street, and grab people out of pubs. And so it, it, I cannot believe that you have said that. Virginia <laughs> not set up because the reason I can't believe you said it is that in pride of place here, which most people are just listening can't see, but I, I have a tankard <laughs> with a with a glass bottom. It's my for my grandfather's <laughs> it was a shooting cup, yeah. and uh, just it sits on my desk. And the reason it has a glass bottom is, is that uh, people supposedly uh, would drop a shilling into your, would buy you a beer, yeah. put a shilling in it, and if you took it, you'd taken the king's shilling and signed up. Uh, so you might accept a beer, uh, you might accept it, but you'd have a look inside the tankard first. Well, that sounds like an issue of contracts law we could debate at some point. But for now, I think the important point is my understanding is that. By the time of the War of 1812, the United States' view of it is that the British had impressed some 15,000 American sailors into the British Navy, meaning they would, as you indicated earlier, Alex, capture a ship as a prize. And if they right. found anyone that they could remotely claim had any kind of British citizenship, and sometimes even if they couldn't, they would literally capture them, take them off the ship and use them to serve in the British Navy. And this was not amusing to a lot of uh, a lot of politicians, the quote unquote war hawks in the U.S. Congress. Right. That was one of your that was one of your course, uh, Cousins Belli. It's one of your um, uh, the explanations given for wanting war with Britain. Uh, and it's true. Uh, it was a, um, a dark um, aspect of uh, British um, Empire that people were in one of many uh, that people were impressed into service that is uh, that is the case I would say fascinatingly that on there were in your civil war and in the war of 1812 and conflicts like it there were people of many nations yes. fighting on both sides yes. it's it's people would tend to forget this and I think that there were you know, the British fighting on the American side there are Americans fighting on the British side uh, and then third third countries were represented handsomely in uh, in all of those conflicts. War has always been something that attracts people across borders to take part, and a force of arms has always been something that uh, the pursuit of arms has always been something that um, people have uh, have signed up for the next conflict from all over the place. Yes, sir. Maybe someday we'll talk about Hemingway. But for now, I would also note that I think it was John King, but we can look this up. One of the CNN correspondents a few years ago spent months on a sort of a quixotic quest to figure out what his ancestors did during the Revolutionary War, uh, much like uh, uh, Geraldo Rivera trying to find Al Capone's hideout. And tons of genealogical research, lots of CNN resources went into this. They filmed all over the place. And I think it was John King, but we'll, we'll correct it if it's not, found out, yes, in fact, his family, his ancestors were heroes of the Revolutionary War, on the on British outside. side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, a great heroes indeed. Does, does old Betsy still exist? She does. In fact, I'm hoping we'll do a live show from there sometime soon. That'd be awesome. I'd uh, love that. Thanks. Thank you very much. That's a great story. Um, I, so, of course, Britain was mostly occupied fighting the Napoleonic Wars at the time. So uh, this uh, sideshow uh, of an affair may not have got the attention of, of our military as it would otherwise have done. But I cannot sure. but concede on those facts and those numbers that it was a truly valiant uh, operation. But as with the able seaman, it could have gone right. 
terribly very differently. And if he'd lost the fort and if he'd been wiped out as a result of refusal to withdraw, the things could have gone the other way, right? It's highly likely that Harrison's forces, which would have been the main defensive forces for the frontier, uh, right. would have been overrun at that point. Yeah, it's it's one of those hinges of history that honestly, even growing up in that town, I didn't really fully understand. Maybe that's because I was you know, out playing music instead of going to school. But but most people don't even know it exists. And two historical footnotes about Fort Stevenson, which, by the way, listeners in the Midwest, you can visit in Fremont, Ohio at any time. One, at least according to this local historian, Fort Stevenson, which is where Major Krogan and old Betsy are laid to rest to this day, is the only fort in the United States of America preserved at its exact original dimensions with its original armament such that it was and with its historic defender with its historic defender interred there also happens to be Burchard public library today where my mother worked most of her career and your humble correspondent endured hour upon hour of book talks (laughs) that is a great and now i know why you why you tell it and why you tell it so well Thank you. I mean, I can't help but notice, of course, that you choose in the War of 1812 not to tell the story of Don't Get Up the Ship, which was <laughs> the Shannon British ship absolutely dishing the Chesapeake. Um, but uh, great story. Well, that's a little earlier than the Battle oh, of Lake Erie. We'll, we'll cover this in a future episode. But for now, let's leave our listeners with the sad tale of what became of Major George Krogan. Major George Krogan, sadly, although he went on to serve alongside Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans, died a heavy drinker and victim of dysentery in 1849. So the rum giveth and the rum taketh away. The rum taketh away. But at least today he rests near old Betsy, whose name, it is speculated, was the inspiration for legendary frontiersman Davy Crockett's rifle. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers. Cheers.